This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of uh, Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and honor to speak with my good friend, uh, Javier Magrina, who is in the Department of Medical and Surgical Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Javier, it's great to have you here for the podcast and truly is an honor. Pedro, thank you so much. Nice to hear your voice. Oh, it's always great to see you and uh, and hear you. So I, I, I wish certainly we could be here in person. So, uh, but obviously um, this is a, this is a great opportunity to talk uh, about an article that has been recently published in the journal Gynecologic Oncology. Um, certainly on a topic that is of uh, significant interest to me as well. Uh, survival outcomes in patients with cervical cancer treated with open versus robotic radical hysterectomy, our surgical pathology interrogation. So um, first of all, I'd like to actually also add that Javier has uh, asked if it's okay uh, for him to ask me questions uh, or a few questions at least at the end of the podcast. So certainly I'm, I'm looking forward to, to those uh, questions um, and hopefully they won't be too challenging. So Javier, um, first of all, congratulations on this publication. Um, obviously, a publication about minimally invasive surgery, particularly on robotic surgery from you and your team, um, highly anticipated and, uh, and certainly of um, high level of interest um, to all of the readership in gynecologic oncology. So I wanted to start uh, with the first question. And, um, you know, obviously, we know the results of the of the LAC trial and numerous other studies that have uh, followed um, that publication over the last two years, looking at open versus minimally invasive um, radical hysterectomy. So just uh, briefly, I wanted to first get your thoughts uh, as to why did you decide to uh, look at this question in your own uh, group? Well, the, uh, the first thing, is I want to congratulate you for the LAC trial. Uh, it is a tremendous effort for accomplishing such a difficult task for so many surgeons and countries. But I also want to congratulate you because you clearly outlined we've got a survival problem with MIS and radical hysterectomy. So to me, it generated more questions uh, in the sense that you outline the problem and I say, well, what is it causing it? The first question for me was, are we having the same problem with uh, as laparoscopy and robotics? So I said, okay, why, why don't we do a study with only robotics? Second, if we found that that was the same quest, the same reason that happened, you know, robotics, laparoscopy, they give you the same survival rate, then we need to do more to find out what is it that is actually causing the problem with the lower survival. So you actually initiated a series of articles that came after this, including ours, looking at, hey, do we have the same thing happening with robotics and why is it happening? Yeah. And Javier, first of all, thank you so much for, for your words uh, initially. And, and, I, and I also want to thank you because back in 2007, when uh, I had some of the discussions regarding the planning of this study, you were always incredibly uh, supportive and, and you were always encouraging 
and uh, and certainly that 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 uh, was really really uh, of value to me as a as a, a young physician starting to uh, explore this question. Um, so certainly, thank you for that, and then and thank you for the uh, to the answer to the question. Um, so now then, that brings me to um, another question. Obviously, one of the issues, and we're going to touch upon several of the uh, issues that have been discussed as it pertains to this subject of open versus minimally invasive. So one of the issues uh, that has surfaced as a somewhat of a problem with uh, MIS radical hysterectomy has been this issue of surgeon volume. Um, and I'm going to go you know, certainly directly into some of the details of, uh, of the study. In this study, there were uh, 12 different surgeons, and there were 152, I believe, robotic radicals over 12 years. Um, would you consider this to be what uh, some would uh, label as high-volume surgery? And, and as, as, as a second question to that, um, you have had, obviously, tremendous experience in the field of minimally invasive surgery, what should be the volume for a surgeon to consider themselves a high-volume surgeon? Good, Pedro. Uh, first, I, I remember when you mentioned 2007 that my thoughts were, Pedro, we need to do the study, and I was thinking it's going to be the same results. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm it out. I was definitely wrong. You were right. So. <laughs> The second for, for high volumes. So when I look into this, uh, we excluded uh, other, other robotic radical tests that we did that had other histological types because we only include uh, squamous, adenos, and adenosquamous. Mm -hmm. so other groups were not. Then the surgeons involved, uh, we are all doing other many other radical operations which uh, would be robotic palpative sensorations, robotic radical tracheolectomies, laparoscopic radical hysterectomies when the robot uh, was not available, modified posterior pelvic exams for mm -hmm. advanced ovarian cancer, uh, robotic radical operations at stage four for deep endo, things like this, which I think uh, maintains surgical proficiency to do a, a radical test. Mm -hmm. okay? so, Given that question, uh, what is what would be, you know, if I had a patient that has a, a vesicovaginal fistula, who would be a high surgeon in the country that I would send it to? Because it's such an unusual operation. Mm -hmm. But but I think that anybody that is working on a daily basis around the vagina in the bladder and deals with the bladder problems probably could fix it fix the fish tumor. So to give you a specific number, I think it's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. If I quote the literature, I think less than 10 a year is low volume. Mm -hmm. uh, more than 50 a year is high volume, which would be more than 50 a year, uh, about probably about one a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the other one would be probably less than one a month. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's uh, obviously, again, um, reinforcing the the uh, issue with regards to, uh, particularly in the United States, that the number of, uh, of radical hysterectomies performed in, in most uh, uh, training uh, centers is, is not very high. Um, now, the, the, uh -huh. the same also with, for instance, robotic radical tracheolectomies too. Mm -hmm. 
which may be that a few centers would be dedicated to do this and the rest of the people will have to refer them. Something, I think, I think we're going to have to consider this in the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, Javier, I also, uh, when looking at the results of, uh, of the study or looking at least at the patient population, um, I noticed also that the open surgery patients um, had higher rates of stage 1B2s or 2As, grade 3s, uh, larger tumors, higher rates of stromal invasion, higher rates of positive nodes. And one of the things that caught my attention was that even with all of those sort of at adverse profile, um, robotic radical hysterectomy patients did worse. What are your thoughts behind that? So first thing, the way we look at the survival, we say we got a problem. We need to find out what it is to the best that we can in a retrospective study because we had data. Mm -hmm. So we had the pathologists to say, hey, look at all the patients that they didn't measure perimetrial and vaginal margins mm -hmm. and remeasure them mm -hmm. so that we can see if we're doing the same operation. So mm -hmm. sure enough, perimetrial and vaginal margins were identical in the open and robotic group. There was no difference. Mm -hmm. Second, our robotic technique was basically a duplication of the open approach. We said what we do robotically is the same as we do it openly. Mm -hmm. So then I said, well, that has something to do exclusively with a minimally invasive approach. Mm -hmm. So so what is it? All right. So I, I thought about three things. One, big difference is that in laparotomy, you have nothing pushing the cervix, nothing in the vagina. Mm -hmm. Number two, once you have done a pulpotomy and detached the uterus, the uterus comes out through the laparotomy incision very quickly, goes to the pathologist. But in the minimally invasive, mm -hmm. you have to pull it through the vagina and sometimes with difficulty because depending on the size of the vagina and the uterus, mm -hmm. it may be a little struggle to do this. Three, when you put an instrument against the cancer cells in the cervix, you're kind of brushing or massaging or rubbing you know, the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. So you create exfoliation of the cancer cells inside of the vagina or in the cervix, mm -hmm. which results in an increased likelihood of free cells that you have that you expose them because once the colpotomy is done, the uterus comes inside of the pelvis, you are dropping this into the pelvis. Mm -hmm. Whether it is a manipulator or whether it is a probe, I think it may have the, the, the vaginal organs. And then I remember that when we did radical vaginal hysterectomies and the laparoscopic lymphadenectomy, the first thing when we went through the vagina, it was to make an incision. Mm -hmm. And immediately after this, close the cervix and suture it over the cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing. And there were no implants or recurrences in the vaginal incision. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the measures that can be used now to prevent the, the, the direct contact with the cancer cells. So why do I think that seeding is a problem, Pedro? Uh, very simple, because when we did look at our local recurrence rate, it happens in the robotic group, it happened about eight months, within eight months, mm -hmm. I think it was about five to nine months, the rate. But when it went to the open group, it took 34 months. Right. So 
I think that tells me that eight months it's sitting. You see the cells growing eight months versus 34 months. It's probably microscopic cells growing later. Mm-hmm. That's it makes me think that we got a, a contamination problem or a sitting or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're actually going to touch upon that um, in a few minutes because I actually want to ask you that. And also, I'm actually going to ask you because you just mentioned the evaluation of the parametrium. And, uh, and I'm really glad that you evaluated parametrial length in, in this study. Um, you know, certainly this was something that has not been looked at in some of the other studies that have uh, evaluated the question of open versus MIS. You saw no difference between one group and the other. Uh, so certainly for those who state that perhaps the technique in parametrial resection is not as adequate um, in the uh, laparoscopic cases or the robotic cases, that, that wasn't the case here. So um, can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, I think that if you, if you do want to look at the radicality of a radical hysterectomy, you have to look at objective measurements, which... Mm-hmm. The two, the two of the ones that we use was in parametrial and vaginal margins, and especially when you talk about surgical proficiency. Mm-hmm. So you said, "Hey, I have, I have, I'm doing a good radical operation. Well, show me your your objective measurements, and then I'll be able to tell you. Mm-hmm. My colleagues will be able to tell you if you do it or you don't do it." So I think that that's one of the uh, issues up here. But in the if in both groups you have the same results, mm-hmm. then, it's, then it's not a problem of radicality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the other things also is that, you know, as you know, obviously with a multi-center trial like the LAC trial um, in, uh, in, you know, in, in, in the discussions that have been uh, proposed is, you know, perhaps there's one site that's the problem. In your study, you had three sites. Um, was there any one site that was, you could say, perhaps at fault for the uh, results that were uh, seen? Yeah, we, when we decided to look at the data, uh, we said, okay, we will look at the sites and we're going to look at each surgeon. We're not going to give site names or surgeon names <laughs> to be there, okay? But uh, we look at the results by each male site. There's no difference. We all have the same problem with the survival, too. Mm-hmm. We looked by surgeon. There was no significant difference. Three, we looked by the nervous sparing versus conventional. We saw no difference. And then mm-hmm. finally, we said, okay, let's look at our learning curve of everybody for the first five years. Yes. And we compared it with the last five years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, sure enough, the last five years, our operating time was about 40 minutes shorter. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the survival also in the last five years was a slightly improved from, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was about 85 to 89% the progression for survival. Overall survival also went up to 91% mm-hmm. in the last group. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that the last five years, our measurements, our parametrial resection were four millimeters less. <laughs> so, so it's, the parameter resection a little less in spite of having all gone through the learning period, mm-hmm. but still we had the problem with the survival. Exactly. And that is still, uh, that in spite of that, so we had improved it, so we were doing something, 
we don't know what it is, but it was that we couldn't analyze. Yeah. So. No, and and that's that's absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm very glad you actually uh, did that uh, because again, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussions of well. You know, in the initial learning phase, then the outcomes are worse. But in the subsequent uh, uh, phase, uh, when the, you know, the surgeon's much more experienced, then the outcomes are better. Uh, you didn't show that, and and again, particularly in, a, in an institution like like yours, where you have the the, the, the reputation for having you know the, the skill and that surgical capacity as well. So. Um, that that was very very interesting as well from the study. Now you mentioned also um, protective maneuvers, uh, and, and of course, obviously, the issue of the uterine manipulator. And these are two things that um, were resonating in the Sucor study that was recently published, also a lead article in our journal. Um, you know, and certainly in that study, they showed that the uterine manipulator may be an issue. Um, that was not the primary objective of that study. But at least everyone suggests, well, if you use a manipulator, perhaps that, that increases uh, the, the risk of spillage, and therefore there's the answer. Um, I noticed in your, in your study, I believe only 12% of patients had a uterine manipulator. So um, what are, I, I'd love to hear your comments about, is the manipulator the culprit here? Yeah, but I, when I was looking at this, I was in contact with Luis Chiva, who is the first author of the Sucora study. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me, Javier, the uterine manipulator is significant when looking at the worst survival and of the people he used versus the other one. And I said, okay, we're going to look into this. But when we looked, we only had 12% of our patients. We said, no, I cannot, that, that's not even worthwhile to look into it. Mm -hmm. So, but when I thought about the main differences that I said between open versus MIS is putting something to the vagina. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably the one of the issues is what you're rubbing against the cervix that is seeding the cells, for instance. Mm -hmm. right? So I said, okay, so how can I answer that question a little better than that? Okay. If I was correct, and this was the case, I had to prove it by looking at actually at two groups of patients. One, I had to look at the survival of patients by size. And so when we look within the robotic and open group, less than two centimeters, we had no difference. And I think other people have also shown mm -hmm. this, that there is no difference when you go to a small size cancers. Mm -hmm. The second one, interestingly, when we look at robotic patients only, that they had a cone before, so supposedly had no residual disease. Mm -hmm. Those patients had improved uh, progression fish survival and overall survival compared to robotic patients with no cone. Mm -hmm. But even more than that, and that was to me was a breakthrough, was that the, their, their PFS and the overall survival of robotic patients with a previous cone was identical to our open group. Mm -hmm. Now, the open group that we look with a, a, a total open group. Yeah, yeah, so. and, and, and yeah, and, and I think that we're gonna we're gonna talk a, a little bit about cones and uh, and outcomes with uh, patients who have had cones a, a little bit later as well. So um, now you um, highlight that uh, I believe it was thirty eight percent of recurrences in the robotic group were what are called unusual recurrences. So you know 
carcinomatosis, bowel surface, trochocytes. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. So we had eight patients that gave me a headache <laughs> because they all had recurrences in the abdomen, uh, trochocyte, peritoneal implants, or carcinomatosis, the, the three things that happened, which did not have any single one in the open mm -hmm. So to me, it's like the same thing. You, you have seeding of cancer cells, three cells in the peritoneal cavity, mm -hmm. and then you are injecting inside CO2, which distributes and, and put those cells all over the peritoneal cavity and puts it into the trogers at pressure. Yeah. You know, they'll go through the trogers inside. Mm -hmm. So it, it, to me, it's mentally, it's almost an injection of a, a pressure hose with cancer cells that you're sitting in the peritoneal cavity. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously exaggerating what it is. Yeah. That's the only explanation, Pedro, that yeah. I could find between the, for this. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely a significant uh, finding. Yeah, and I, and I remember that uh, when there was uh, the initial literature on port side metastases uh, in animal models with uh, colorectal cancer, that this was definitely shown that the, the sort of like the aerosolized cancer cells uh, throughout the abdominal um, cavity. Um, now, I, one I, I think that you settled that issue with, uh, with a, a major review that you published. <laughs> That 1% of the patients will have trochocytes with cancer, right? <laughs> I think they, now after the LAC trial, probably one of the most referenced papers that, I, that I've written. <laughs> um, now, Javier, one, one thing that I was really glad to see also uh, in your study was that, um, you know, what is the five-year survival in patients who undergo open surgery? Because, you know, one of the criticisms of the LAC trial was, well, your open patients did so good that it made the minimally invasive group uh, appear inferior. Uh, we had a 98% uh, overall survival at 4.5 years in the LAC trial. In your study, 97%. So very, very consistent. Open patients did very well. Um, so, you know, what, what are your thoughts with regards to those who potentially claim that open surgery shouldn't have this greater survival? Well, we, we basically have duplicated your own results of, a, of the leg trial with the open case. Mm -hmm. And if we actually are going to continue doing MIS, we need to expect and achieve the same survival rates. Mm -hmm. It's not because we want to use MIS, we have to accept a lower survival. No, that's unacceptable for me. Mm -hmm. So, all I can say is that if we want to improve, if we do right now, uh, MIS with the previous cone, we expect to find the same survival as in the open group. Yeah. So I'm, I'm now a proponent, strong proponent of doing a cone just before mm. the uh, MIS radical hits, if you happen to be one that is still would like to continue uh, doing MIS surgery for radical hysterectomies. Yeah. I, I think I think that the days of doing a red his without any uh, any directions to prevent seeding or exfoliation of cancer cells, those days are over. Yeah, 
I, I completely agree. Yeah. I completely agree. And and you 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 know certainly following up uh, along that in the uh, element of colonization, you mentioned in in your paper that future trials, ideally in patients with colonization and no residual disease, will, will hopefully be done. You know, the, I think that the issue that I see with that is that, you know, given that there's such a low recurrence rate in these patients with a colonization, um, you know, it, I think that it will be really challenging to find enough patients that would be enrolled in these studies. And then particularly now, you know, as we start seeing some of the conservative surgery trials, if they show that, those patients don't even need a radical hysterectomy, then that's even going to be an even lower pool of patients. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely, Pedro. Uh, I agree with you. This is going to be a difficult uh, study to perform. If if we really want to provide a good answer, not just an answer, but a good answer to the survival problem that you outlined uh, so well in the LAC trial, we need to do a study compare previous colonization open versus MIS. Mm-hmm. If you do a previous colon in open, previous colon MIS, and you still have lower survival in the MIS group, uh, man, I don't know what's going to be the next step because I haven't thought about it. <laughs> to me, that would be to me that would be the next step. Yeah. And now, Javier, you um, you know certainly one of the things that has come up, and and I think you mentioned it actually in your in your introduction, is the issue of evaluating surgical skills and proficiency, and how that is a challenge for any surgical trial. Um, you know, certainly, obviously, I would say you're one of the most skilled robotic surgeons that I have ever seen. Um, do you think that, given the results of this study? Is it a, a matter solely of the of the surgeon's skill, or are there other factors? Well, Pedro, thank you so much for uh, for buttering my back in here. Uh, it, it, it's an honest statement. <laughs> I, just, I, I just always try to do my best, and always thinking that we can always improve what we're doing every day. But uh, when it it's clear that in cancer surgery, by many published studies. When it is performed by subspecialty trained and oncology practicing physicians, the survival is better, results are better. So I think that that, that is one, good training. And, and traveling around the world, I still see some, in some countries they have some, they call themselves oncologists, but without having had a formal oncology training. And in some of them, they tell me, yeah, I still do obstetrics once in a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, to me, that would be probably not for me. I cannot, I can't, I can't even hardly do one well. So mm-hmm. that's it too. The, the issue of the radicality, I think, is everyone has to look for themselves. Say, yep, I'm doing a good job. I'm going to ask somebody else, am I doing well or not? Or do I have to refer uh, the patients uh, to somebody else? Mm-hmm. And, and like I said before, right now, uh, it's a matter of that if you want to continue doing MIS, please prevent the tumorous pillage. Yeah. Do something that, that's going to improve your survival. Okay. So, Javier, I have uh, just two, two, two more questions. I'd love to keep speaking with you, obviously, for you know hours, of course. Uh, but I have yeah. two, two more questions before uh, I, I'll, uh, I'll let you ask me uh, some of the questions you, uh, you wanted to uh, propose. Um, one of them is... Uh, 
you know, when we look at Lactrol, obviously showing worse oncologic outcomes for MIS, um, a subsequent study from the Lactrol, a secondary objective, of course, was that there was no difference in overall complication rates. And then the, the third study that was published in Lancet Oncology on quality of life. So first time, prospective, randomized trial, evaluating quality of life objectively, um, showing no difference in quality of life, no difference in complications, and certainly worse oncologic outcomes. My question is, is there a reason for any patient undergoing minimally invasive radical hysterectomy outside of a clinical trial? Very, very good question. I'll, I'll tell you that in our hands, when uh, we look at MIS versus laparotomy, um, I, I have, and I have no, no doubts that MIS has some advantages. For instance, lower uh, EDL, uh, lower blood transfusion rates, shorter hospital state, uh, post-op recovery is faster, also less post-operative pain. That's on the short term. When I look at the long term for those patients, uh, there are two, two issues that I can think of. One is uh, for the data, I think it's for simple laparotomy hysterectomies, a uh, uh, small bowel obstruction. It's a slightly increased in the group with an incision because the bowel gets stuck to the incision as compared to the trucosense. And, and the other one is the incidence of ventral herniation that it, on a laparotic incision. That if you look at, at one year or two years, there's no difference. But if you look down at uh, 13 years and over, it's about a 10% hernia rate. So there is some differences. It it's all depends on the outcomes that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. I still think that there is an advantage on the MIS. Well, if, if we have the same survival. Yes. So then that leads me to the last question. And actually this question uh, was one of those questions that I, that I was mentioning to you earlier where, um, you know, certain, certainly a number of colleagues throughout the field here, well, you're going to interview Javier. So ask him this question. Your study showed that patients who underwent robotic radical hysterectomy had inferior progression, free survival and inferior overall survival compared to open surgery. So the question is, Will minimally invasive radical hysterectomy continue to be performed at the Mayo Clinic, given these findings? All right, good question. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, what it has transpired since, the, uh, since your trial and the other publications and our, our own results, which were evaluated in the three sites. So some have reversed to the open technique exclusively. Others, everybody has changed, by the way. Others have continued to use the robotic approach, but taking measures to prevent the seating and the exfoliations. And, and you know, there are three ways to do this. One is before the start of the operation is that the right angle vaginal hysterectomy. You close the vagina in front of the cervix. Mm -hmm. you, you prevent the seating. Or I'm a big proponent of colonization. So that's before. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do it during the operation, then you, after you do the bladder resection and you have, and you're going to do the compotomy before you start doing it, you put a couple of endo loops and then you cut between the endo loops. Yeah. So you prevent the seating one way or the other one, but everyone is doing either or the other. There is no one doing, uh, actually, I think that by a majority of the open, 
Okay. Uh, rather convinced. Yeah. Okay. Well, Javier, I'll uh, I'll give you a chance to uh, take a few minutes and then uh, ask me the questions that uh, you uh, you had in mind. Oh my God! Hopefully, hopefully it won't be too challenging. And remember, I have the power to edit. <laughs> I yeah, I know you can disconnect me anytime you want. <laughs> we'll never do that. Respect you too much. I mean, you have uh, you done a fabulous uh, a trial. And we've learned a lot of things in the process. If you were going to do the leg trial again, hmm. what would you do different this time? Hmm. Um, thank you for that question, and thank you for <laughs> for the compliments on the uh, on the on the trial. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot that one learns uh, from running and, and completing a, a prospective surgical trial. Um, I think that if I had the resources um, and I was starting the trial again, I definitely would um, have a, a central pathology review to assure that we had uh, the best uh, uh, gynecologic uh, pathologist evaluating the, 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 the histologic uh, subtype of the tumors but also particularly for small tumors uh, to evaluate the tumor size and, uh, and have a very accurate measurement of, uh, of the um, actual tumor size and, and, and as well as obviously all of the other components of the, of the pathology. I think also imaging, um, ideally central imaging, it's also uh, preferable. Uh, because, as you know, uh, tumor size is, uh, is one of the main factors where there's so much variability in terms of how we evaluate uh, tumor size, particularly now in adenocarcinoma. Uh, fortunately, the, um, and there's going to be a consensus statement that's going to be published soon um, by, um, by uh, colleagues of pathology from actually globally um, on how to measure tumor size appropriately. Um, so those 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 will be the the primary uh, changes that I that I would certainly make, um, and then of course obviously you know to to design a study with a lot more patients to capture information about patients with low risk criteria of less than two centimeters to truly see if there was any um, impact on uh, minimally invasive surgery. Issue you mentioned the central path review, which definitely would make it more more equal and, and for everybody. On that issue, you had on the light trial, you had a group of patients that had cone, which I think was similar in both groups. Mm -hmm. uh, can some of this data be retrieved or analyzed to see and compare these groups? Yeah. Versus the one that didn't have a code, or maybe you're ready to do it. Yeah. So a couple of things. Yeah, definitely. You know, and one thing that I would also say to our audience, because a lot of times, you know, these comments come up, but it's like, well, how can we mine the data from the LAC trial? Anyone who's interested in doing a, a post hoc analysis on uh, the database that we have for the LAC trial, they can certainly submit a protocol to the trial management committee. Um, and, uh, and certainly it'll be evaluated and then that, you know, certainly if, if, if it's considered to be a valid uh, question and a question where we have the data to answer it, that we welcome, uh, those, those, uh, those, uh, proposals. 
I think the issue with regards to determining outcomes in patients with uh, and without aconization is that typically the patients that have not had aconization are typically patients who are already going to have that worse looking profile. In other words, if you had a tumor that was grossly two centimeters, that patient's not going to have aconization. So that, that patient would go into the no conization group versus the patient had just a, a, you know, a, an abnormal uh, pap or, a, or a, a biopsy and no gross lesion that that patient had aconization. Then that already is a patient that you weren't even seeing the tumor. So, of course, it's going to be a, a lower risk profile patient. And I think also, you know, certainly we can look at cone versus no cone outcomes. But we're, you know, the, the study w doesn't have enough number of patients to to look at survival outcomes in, in that setting. And so it's something that we can look for sort of like just referencing point, but uh, not to really draw conclusions about uh, survival. Got you, got you, got you. Thank you so much. And, and if I may, I have one question for those who may be listening to this. Mm -hmm. and want to continue doing the MIS approach, the radical test, mm -hmm. what would you recommend them to do now differently? Yeah. You know, certainly what I would definitely uh, recommend is ideally, obviously there's, uh, there's two ongoing prospective randomized trials also evaluating the same question. So if in any way potentially collaborating with those institutions so that they can finish the, their studies, uh, sooner rather than later, that would be that would be ideal. I think you know, frankly, uh, Javier, I think that with NCCN guidelines, ESGO guidelines, ESMO guidelines, and FIGO guidelines saying the standard approach is open radical hysterectomy, I don't see outside of a clinical trial um, how it would be justified to to do so. And I and I know that you know certainly there are those who propose and say, well. You know, in my hands, this doesn't happen. You don't have enough numbers to actually determine whether it does or does not happen uh, when, when, when that is your claim. Um, so I think that you know, outside of a clinical trial with all guidelines suggesting otherwise, uh, I, I find it challenging to propose that to a patient. Good, good. Very good question, Pedro. Hey, it's been fun. I'm, uh, thank you for allowing me to ask you some questions. I've learned, I've learned a lot. Well, I tell you, you know, thank you for proposing. That's a that's a first, and uh, and uh, certainly, I, of course, obviously, I always learn a, a tremendous amount uh, from you. Uh, and uh, I wish we could be speaking like this in uh, in your lake house in Arizona. Uh, but hopefully sometime soon. And, uh, and I know that our entire audience will really value uh, this, uh, this podcast and listening to you. And last thing I want to say is uh, thank you for everything that you have contributed to the training and education of so many minimally invasive surgeons and for what you've done for women's cancers. Thank you. Pedro, the respect is mutual. Thank you so much for... Uh having the opportunity to discuss all this with you today. I wish you the best. Thank you, Javier.